Recorded live. Hey, everybody. This is the Mixed Experience, and it's September 13th, 2016. I'm your host, Heidi DeRoe, and this is the only live weekly show about being racially and culturally mixed. It's basically a mixed chick's mixed thoughts on a mixed-up world. That is really hard to say on some days. I'm not sure why I picked that tagline. Uh, Anyway, thanks so much for joining me today. This is a marathon number of episodes I'm doing this week. had a great episode yesterday with the award-winning author, Hasantha Kassir-Sena. Today, we have a fantastic guest in Robert Reese. And on Thursday, no, Friday, I interview uh, Dr. Eric Coleman about her book, about African-American and Native American connections, uh, particularly in the Virginia area, which is really a a lot of interest to me in light of the fact that that's where the Lovings were, uh, the the famous family. In any event, I want to do a couple of quick announcements and and then get to this conversation with my guest today, who I'm really excited to talk to about his uh, work and study. You, though, have to remember, I have this labor of love, uh, this project that I do as an all-volunteer project, uh, trying to raise uh, thousands of dollars each year to keep it going. It's called the Mixed Remixed Festival, and it happens every June in Los Angeles. We celebrate films, books, and performance, uh, and they're all stories of the mixed race and multiracial experience. Really powerful, uh, really special event. Last year, this Past June, we had record attendance. Uh, just shy of a thousand people showed up for the two days of celebration, and uh, also very moving. Well, we want to keep that good feeling going on throughout the year, and we were trying to figure out ways that we could connect without having to raise a lot more money, which is always a big challenge when you're an all-volunteer nonprofit arts organization. Uh, what we decided to do, and we're really thrilled about, is that we've created an online book club. Our very first book pick is Loving Day by the wonderful Matt Johnson. So hopefully you've picked up a book at your local indie bookstore or Amazon or where your library and are reading it. And we will convene on a call like this on October 4th so that you can talk to us about your thoughts of the book and your questions and your ideas and issues and uh, we can get together. We also have the book club online at Goodreads. So if you go to Goodreads, you can just look up Mixed Remix Festival and join in on any of the conversations we're having about the book already. We'll also be scheduling a Twitter chat in the next couple of days, so look out for the date of that. That'll probably also be that first week of October. So yeah, join us. The book is fantastic, and uh, As a bonus, I just have to say, I'll have Matt Johnson on the show on October 4th during the day. So so there's that, too. Very exciting. Second announcement and last one. Sorry this is going on for so long, but I'm teaching a writing workshop. It's a week-long writing workshop at Jurassi, which is an amazing uh, artist residency outside of Stanford University in Woodside, California. This is the most uh, beautiful, uh, special place you could be in. It's uh, nature supreme. It's wonderful. The last time I taught the class uh, was in 2014, and two of those people have books coming out this year. So I'm just saying, like, I'm not saying I was the reason, but it was a really good experience for all involved. 
including myself, and I just want to make sure you know that applications are open. You can go to my website, HeidiWDuro.com, or to Jurassic.org and look under workshops. I'd love to um, read your work, and we're putting together a great group of people to work together. Enough of that. I am so excited to talk to my guest today. His name is Robert Reese, and he's a PhD candidate in sociology at Duke University, where he takes an intersectional critical race approach to research on the American South, colorism, gender, sex, sexuality, and digital technology. He's the co-founder of Still Furious and Brave, a blogging collective of scholar activists that focuses on issues that rest at the intersections of race, religion, feminism, and he's the founder of Magnolia Fresh, a fashion blog that seeks to cater to black men in the South. He's a member of the editorial board for Scallywag Magazine, a quarterly magazine. He is originally from Leland, Mississippi, a small town in the heart of the Mississippi Delta, and he obtained a BA and MA in sociology from the University of Mississippi. He's organized or co-organized forums about masculinity and sexual assault, blackness in the 21st century, Mississippi's Personhood Act, and the Contemporary Social Movement with co-founder Bobby Seale. Robert collects black art, Black Panther party memorabilia, black superhero comics, Legos, and considers himself to be a connoisseur of Southern rap. I'm super excited to welcome to the show today, Robert. Hi, Robert. Welcome. Hey, how you doing? Hearing that bio read aloud was kind of embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. But it's all true. I I took it directly from your website. It's all true. It's true. You've done all of it, and and you're still so young. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's true, and I wrote it, and I like <laughs> reading it. Hearing it aloud was uh, like, oh, this just keeps going and going. I love it. I mean, that's why I included it all, because it just shows the diversity, and also it was kind of a way to give you a hint to at least one possible answer to the very first question I have for you today, which is, what are you? <laughs> it's funny. I thought about this because you said in the email that you would ask, and I still don't have a good answer. Got, <laughs> I rolled over a lot of things in my head over the last few days. I was like, eh, I'm this, and I'm this, but then that leaves out this. And um, I don't know. I'm I'm a Southerner. I'm a Mississippian. Um, I think I'm a scholar activist uh, in some ways. Uh, a, a, yeah. a fashionista. <laughs> On some days, I guess. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's obviously this is my attempt at turning that question on its head because that's something that I know I'm often, well, actually daily asked about, you know, what are you? Because people look at me and they're not necessarily sure how to place me depending on which landscape I'm in or which uh, context they meet me in. So, you know, I, I love to hear that that moment, well, I don't know, this sounds sadistic now, but that moment of confusion for others when, when they're faced with it necessarily, maybe for the first time. Um, anyway, so I hope I haven't, like, discombobulated you too much with that question. <laughs> Definitely not. Because the, there is no right answer, obviously. Yeah, it was just about finding the answer that felt right for me, which is weird because I, I didn't even go to race. Like, I've never been asked, what are you racially? Like, uh, like I assume you have um, 
Yeah, so I didn't even think about that as a, as an option. I was thinking more about I don't know how to how to convey my politics in a um, in a really succinct way. I don't know if I did. You know that that is so interesting. I wonder would that be a function of the fact that you've spent most of your life in the South, where I think even though the color lines have obviously mixed in many different ways there's a certain necessary idea there that there is a big difference between the races. Yeah. And I think that definitely, um, but I think mostly is because I look pretty officially unambiguous, right? Like, <laughs> like if you see me, <laughs> you see me in person, like you see me walking down the street, like you're not going to most people, the overwhelming majority of people, um, are going to be, like, that's a black man. Like, my, uh have a colleague who uh, who calls me the quintessential Negro. Um, <laughs> like, big black man with dreadlocks from the Mississippi Delta. Um, like, black experience is just layered on top of each other. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that's so awesome. Although, I wonder... You know, I wonder if you were in a different landscape, a different context, it would be different. So my my husband is African-American, a brown-skinned African-American man, um, bald head. And when we were in Egypt, everyone thought he was their cousin from Aswan. Um, They were like, oh, you look like my cousin from Aswan. Like wherever we went in Egypt, everyone said that. And then we realized after a while that nobody really liked their cousin from Aswan, apparently. <laughs> but that was it was very discombobulating for him to have people not recognize that he was an African-American man. And um, and he, he really struggled with that. So it wasn't much of a vacation that year. <laughs> oh, definitely. You're right. Like different, different, different social contexts with elicit different responses. No, you're right. And the United States is pretty unambiguous. In other places, we may run into some weird questions like he got. Right. Well, so, I mean, the reason I'm belaboring all of this is because uh, one of the things that you're writing about that you're studying is what does it mean to look a certain way? So I read about your study called what are you mixed with? The effect of multiracial identification on perceived attractiveness. Um, tell me a little bit about the the genesis of the research project that you did. Well, the study started as um, more of an examination of of colorism, right? So I wanted to examine. People talk about colorism increasingly now, right? And so, like, colorism is the idea that um, people of color with um, physical features that are more stereotypically white, so lighter skin, thinner noses, um, thinner lips, straight hair, et cetera, uh, receive social advantages relative to people who look more um, ethnic, for lack of a better word, right? Um, But in sociology, sociological surveys, most of the studies of colorism um, only look at skin tone. So you look at um, how your skin tone shapes your life chances in a variety of ways. So the study started as me wanting to expand 
um, sociological analyses of skin of colorism um, to include other uh, physical characteristics. So I want to look at eye color and hair color and hair and hair texture, like things that other other researchers hadn't looked at. Um, but it ended up I started reading and I'm seeing what other people had talked about, and I ended up falling into this idea about multiracial people um, or people who identify as multiracial, rather, um, and how they self-identified, how they identify their own attractiveness and through some... uh, a little thought, some conceptual mapping. I came up with this idea, so I wanted to examine like whether or not the idea that a person is multiracial is um, affects how people perceive them, even when I'm controlling for how they look. Well, I mean, this is what was really shocking to me, although it shouldn't have been, because it harkens back to this quote that I was looking for desperately today by Alice Walker, who talks about every African-American claims to be at least one-eighth Cherokee. And uh-huh. um, even in my own family, I, that, that's been the claim as well, but the DNA doesn't map that out, apparently. <laughs> but always that was the claim, like that's where my aunt got her hair from. And, uh, but it's so fascinating. So what the study is actually saying is that just by saying you're multiracial, you are then therefore perceived as more attractive just because of the idea of being somehow mixed uh, is part of your, your stated identity. Right. Exactly. And so was this a surprising result to you? What did you make of the findings? Um, It wasn't super surprising. Some of the particulars of it were surprising, but there is, the big result that people um, find you more attractive if you identify as multiracial wasn't the most surprising part. Some other, some other research has suggested that that may be the case. Um, I cited, I think, two, um, two studies of, uh, of strip clubs where um, the researchers went in and did these ethnographies of the strip clubs and like, talked to the workers and, and found that the, the workers had learned that if they presented like these fabricated genealogies to the patrons of the strip club, that they would make more money. So you go to um, this guy and rather than saying, rather than letting them know that you're black, you go and be like, I'm a quarter black and um, half Spanish and like one eighth Greek or whatever. Right. And, <laughs> and those ideas, um, like lead me into tip more. Um, so I you know, it's so interesting, but it was, but in those studies as well, it was just because they said it. It wasn't that their right. costumes reflected they, it in any way. Right. It didn't look different. Same appearance. You just said it. And it's like, there's this idea, like this cognitive shift. So the, the results, like those results weren't, um, the big results weren't terribly surprising. Like it's, it's what I expected to happen more or less, but like the particulars of the results um, that uh, we're just talking about colorism. So it's like we know that lighter skinned people are typically viewed as more attractive. Um, yeah. There's a clear gradient 
among black people, which are the people who or people who identified as black, which are the people who um, are included in this study. So from the darkest skinned black people to the lightest skinned black people, there's a clear gradient increasing attractiveness. Um, but here, when I started to, like, disaggregate by whether a person was identified as monoracial or whether identified as multiracial, um, it was odd. Like, even the darkest-skinned multiracial people, multiracial-identified people, um, were rated as more attractive than the lightest-skinned monoracially identified black people, which that was astounding to me to see that um, multiracial identification was a stronger predictor of attractiveness than skin tone. I I find that absolutely shocking. And, and I know, like, for me personally, as a writer and in my writing, I'm very much interested in these ideas about particularly the ways in which society's ideas of beauty and racial identity fit together. Um, that's what my first book was all about. It's probably a lot of what's in this book that I'm working on now as well. Um, but we also have to make sure that people like put the conversation in context because it's not just talking about beauty because what, what we're talking about also is that there are effects to being perceived more beautiful in society. Right. I mean, there are, you actually get benefits if you are considered more beautiful. It's known that you probably have a higher income, you have a higher chance of being hired, um, you're considered more competent, even though beauty doesn't necessarily correlate with that, but it does in people's minds. Um, so so this is, it's a really frustrating study to, to learn about. And I wondered, you know, with this information, where, where do you go from here? Um, that's the big question, right? And that's always, that's always the question with research about inequality. Um, where do we go from here? And, like, sometimes the answer is more straightforward than other times. Like, um, sometimes there's an easy policy solution. In this case, I don't think there is. Uh, like, it's hard to legislate. Um, it's hard to legislate things like colorism, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's hard to legislate, um, and I think it's even harder to legislate uh, things like attractiveness and identification, because this isn't about, like, what race quote, actually are. This is about how you identify and, like, how people perceive you based on, like, that verbal identification. Um, so I think I think what this research can do, and some psychological studies suggest that um, when people are aware of their biases and accept their biases, like some people call it when they're primed um, about their biases, they're able to compensate um, to a degree. So if I'm aware that um, I'm a teacher, I'm a professor, and I give my attractive students more attention in the classroom than my unattractive students, which is a study that, <laughs> which a study shows that that's true for students in elementary school. That teachers give wow. pretty elementary school students, they call on them more in class. Um, but so if I'm aware that this is happening, and because nobody, 
like it's called implicit bias for a reason, right? People don't like aren't necessarily thinking that um, I'm going to be more generous to this pretty person that ignores this unattractive person. Um, it just sometimes it just kind of happens. So, but people when when you're aware of these biases, you can kind of compensate. You can be deliberate in the ways that um, in the ways that you treat treat people. So you can try to be aware and try to redistribute um, your attention um, more more evenly. Um, in other cases, I think like some of the solutions here kind of fall in line with things that people already know. Um, for example, we know that in government in government jobs, right, there are smaller racial disparities in pay because the salaries are relatively set. They're less arbitrary, and they're, like, typically, like, relatively clear benchmarks for what you have to do to get promoted. Um, and that type of thing, I think, has the potential to not only reduce, like, racial disparities in salary, which we see that it does to a degree, um, may also have a similar effect with things like colorism and um, attractiveness and multiracial identification. Um, I don't think there's any like. I don't think those are like. I don't think those are world-saving solutions, right? <laughs> I think they're really, really small steps. Um, but it's it's something. It's a start. I mean, it is a start. Um, one of the things that I kept thinking about when I was reading the study and thinking about talking to you today was some of the things that Matt Johnson, the novelist, has talked about in about being mixed race and uh, what race means. He's quoted in a story, I think it's from a Salon article from last year. He says, mixed identity allows you to see the absurdity of race and the fact that race is actually a strategy. And, you know, I read that quote and I thought, oh my gosh, that's what this, that's what this study shows us. I mean, that you can actually become more magical just by saying that you're more magical, right? <laughs> right, exactly, right. <laughs> which which I actually think, I mean, does that give it a, some power? Does that actually give some agency then to people? Um, I don't know. Like, it's, it's, it's definitely true, right, that race is a strategy. And some other studies show that people identify differently um, based on where they are, right? Like, Remember this one particular study of um, multiracial children that showed that um, some some kids who identify as multiracial at school then go home, and because of pressure from one or more parents, they would identify as black at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's definitely a strategy, but I don't know if like, but I don't know to what extent, right? Because um, even as as people like have had conversations about this study over the past few months. Um, like the politics of racial identification have started to come out. So even people, so it's a strategy that you can deploy, but a lot of black people don't want to strategize their blackness that way. They don't want to, um, to I guess, sully their blackness by claiming to be something else. Um, <laughs> Like identifying as black is a political it's a political thing. People feel really strongly about it. And I've had conversations um 
in some of my other research with women who would get frustrated that men would ask them, what are you? Right. <laughs> and they'd yes. be like, I'm black. Like, both of my parents are black. I'm really, really black. Like, I'm not mixed with anything. <laughs> they'd be like, no, but you're so gorgeous. you got to be something else. Um. And <laughs> like, no. And it's like this, like, their blackness is important to them. Like, it's important to um, to claim it. Um, so there is, so, yeah, it can be a strategy. It can be something that you can deploy to your, to your benefit. But I, um, but a, a lot of people don't want to live that way. Right. No, of course not. And, you know, it also, oh, I don't know. Like I, st- I started thinking about this whole mixed race baby fetish thing too, I, which just drives me crazy. Everyone who talks about, oh, I want a mixed baby, or they're constantly posting pictures of mixed babies and how beautiful they are. Uh, it, it seems I don't know what the connection is to your study, but but these ideas about beauty and race and especially, you know, this you write about and talk about in your study, I think it's called the biracial beauty stereotype. Um, You know, it's detrimental to connection and community, I think, ultimately. You know, I, I talk about mixed race issues and being culturally mixed uh, but for me, that that tribe is a large and encompassing tribe of of just about everyone. Because where I am with the idea is not about uh, blood quantum or looks, you know, you know, the image of the person, but what is the story behind the person, uh, and what is the experience, like the everyday lived experience of the person, and that's right. really where where I'm defining mixedness. And so when I see these studies, I go. Ah, so when I asked about this idea of agency, it was more like, well, can we find something good to say about this <laughs> that doesn't continue to frustrate me around these conversations? Right, um, right, and like that's that's a really good point, right? That because um, the blood quantum thing has annoyed me a lot, a lot. I actually wrote an essay about it a few months ago. I think it's that's another twenty minutes, but. Uh, I'll bring you that. (laughs) Yeah. But um, the idea that, like, race is experience, I think, is important. Um, Another colleague who identifies as multiracial, like, with the um, black father and uh, a white mother, um, looks very, very white. Um, Like, if this was the 1920s, she could pass, right? I mean, I'm I'm sure she does now, but just to, like, put that in context. Um, and she, even though she identifies as multiracial, and people are shocked to find out that she is half black. Um, like she is, she's the only, like she doesn't have like those black experiences to be able to identify as a black person. And mm-hmm. um, I think the opposite is true for um, I have friends who are. Uh, who are also multiracial and look more black and end up identifying as black because they get treated as such. And sometimes it appears the more complicated where, as I have another colleague who is also multiracial, he says when he's with his black family, even though he's really, really light-skinned, when he's with his black family members, he's treated as a light-skinned black guy. And when he's with his white family, 
is treated as a white person. Like, people don't bother to parse out the differences. And uh, even though it's it's experiential in this kind of way, like, it's uh, even experiences are complicated. Right. And Your experience is informed by the perception of others as well. I mean, it is it is a give and take situation as well. Right. Go ahead. Uh, just saying that there's only so much uh there's only so much I think that um and this is something I try I want to get at more, but there's there's only so much you can do um that is bounded, right? If you look there's only so much benefit somebody who looks like me can get in the American South by telling people that I'm uh that no, I mean I'm black but I'm only like <laughs> I guess at some point you start to get pushback by some people like saying, No, you are black. Like like my you colleague, know like she says people that tells me that she's had black are like, No, you're really white. Like we know what you are. Like, you get pushed back I think at some point. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to. You can't underestimate the time that we're living in, where everything is topsy turvy. You can say one thing in one moment, and then the opposite, and it's all true. Uh, and then go right. back and have never flip flopped. We are living in a, a very strange time in that way. And, and and the other piece of that is, I I remember reading somewhere like the way that you can you know start to hypnotize someone is to simply answer a direct question with an answer that they are not expecting. So like if you're walking in Times Square and you you say to someone, you know, how far is it to get to the Taj Mahal from here? It's a disorienting question in that disorientation. <laughs> that that's when you get them and you and you do the mind control at that point. <laughs> so maybe that's our strategy going forward to change ideas about race and perception and perceived beauty. I don't know. Um, what else are you working on next? I mean, do you think you'll still work on these issues of, I guess, I, I don't, uh, multiracial identification or uh, what is your interest skewed to going forward with your research? There are um, a few different threads of research that are coming out of um, this in particular, um, one is that I'm working with um, a colleague trying to parse out um, some of the more particulars of this particular paper. So I'm trying to look at how uh, we're going to look at how they may differ, how it may differ by gender, um, how it may differ, how these things may differ by what type of multiracial you are, which I guess is a weird way to <laughs> yeah. say it, but whether um, you identify as black and white or whether you identify as black and Asian or whatever. Um, and also I want to look at how other markers of um, other physical features kind of interact with skin tone, um, like how like things like physical size, like whether you're fat or whether you're tall, like interact with how people perceive you. Uh, my... Um, X was a uh, like a really pretty big light skinned black woman with a big ass afro, and like we talk about like <laughs> her experiences as um, like how she would be perceived as um, depending on how people felt about her size versus her being really pretty um, and being light skinned, and it was a really complicated 
um, intersection of identities um, that you had to try to navigate. Um, and so I want to examine those type of things, like whether uh, and big people like have this um, double burden that they have to endure on. I think that's a worthwhile study. I mean, I, you know, I've been up and down in my weight over the years, and I think I'm more seen as racial, more racialized when I'm heavier for some reason. I don't, not Uh sure why that is, but that's my own personal theory of my experience. Uh, The other thing I would throw in there for you is age. You know, it's very interesting from being, you know, the light-skinned girl growing up to then being almost 50 uh, and the ways in which my race is now perceived, sometimes less and less. Uh, and I have friends who are aging also, and they're, they think more people think they're white as they grow older, which I, <laughs> I'm, not sure what, I'm not sure what that means exactly. So, yeah, anyway, if, when you have time, I want to know more about that as well. Is this just kind of an experiential thing that, or an anecdotal thing, uh, or is this is something really going on here? Right. That's and that's interesting, right? Like how people perceive you, and I think um, how. So there's a study I'm thinking of that looks at how people, quote unquote, change race over the life course. Um, how people self-identify differently and how people are perceived differently racially based on Mm -hmm. um, certain life experiences, right? So if you are multiracial and you go to prison, you get out and people are more likely to perceive you as black. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, you you get a promotion and you become whiter. And it goes back to what we were saying about experiences, um, but even those, I think, are bounded uh, in certain ways. But, yeah, I think age is also important. I don't know. Um, I think even just partially because people, like, maybe start to settle into an identity after, like, it may be more in flux when you're an adolescent, kind of finding your way. And I, I think that's definitely right. I mean, one of the things that I'm – I'm experiencing it right now, actually, but, you know, there's always this great energy when people start talking about multiracial experience, maybe for the first time if they're in their teens or college, and there's lots of activism, and then um, and then nothing. And, and I, I have coined a term called mulatto fatigue. Like, they just, they just got tired of talking about it, so they settled in <laughs> to whatever was happening in the moment, because you can spend a lot of energy telling people that you're multiracial uh, and not and not necessarily get all those benefits that the studies suggest that you're supposed to get. <laughs> right, right. Like, I could, I understand that. Like, I have, it's not a problem I've had to, to navigate, but it makes sense. Yeah. Well, Robert, I so appreciate this time that you took to talk about your work today. I really appreciate your work. I definitely will will check out um, Hey Arnold now. I know we didn't talk about this on the show, so everyone listening to this will be mystified, but I think we should all check it out at this point. And and please keep in touch. I want to hear what you are up to next, most definitely. Oh, definitely. If anything anything interesting comes out, I will let you know. And and people can find you on your website, um, robertreese.com. RobertLReese.com. 
I'm sorry, robertlreese.com. Um, I think I have a link up to it. I'll make sure on my website. And then also he's on Twitter as Fuzzy Slippers. Hey, man. <laughs> hey, Arnold. <laughs> thanks, Robert, so much for talking to me today. I'll talk to you again soon, I hope. All right, thanks. Thanks for inviting okay. me. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Okay, so I, I was really excited to be able to get him on the show because his work is important. Um, it did touch a nerve with a lot of people. And as you can see, as I was talking to him, I'm still trying to puzzle out what it all means um, to me in terms of the ways in which I talk about these issues. So I'd love to hear from you um, to hear what you are thinking about his study. I actually, I, I'm not sure if I have a link up to the study right now, but I'll put it up now on my website so that you can actually read the full study. And um, thanks for joining me today. My name is Heidi DeRoe. This is The Mixed Experience. We are on a roll this week. Uh, join me again on Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern. So that's pretty early for you guys. You can always download it on iTunes. And if you happen to be over on iTunes and want to leave a nice little review, gosh, that would make me feel so good, make me so happy. Anyway, thanks for joining me today. I will talk to you again later this week. Bye, guys.